Now, last week, we dealt uh, really briefly, well, not briefly, we went through this chapter um, as kind of an overview to understand why sexual immorality is such a big deal for Paul and in the Corinthian church. Now, if you're new here with us this morning, let's just briefly recap what Paul's letter to the church in Corinthians is all about. Paul has written a letter to this church in Corinth, a new body of believers who are starting to divide over unnecessary things. They're starting to divide by saying that I follow this leader or I follow this leader. And Paul is saying that this has built you up into arrogance, that we follow Christ Jesus in him alone. Then Paul shifts and he moves over to the issue of sexual immorality in the church. And last week we saw that it's such a big deal for Paul because he wants us to understand our bodies, who we are, and that we represent the image and temple of God. First, we saw that we are made in the image of God, that we have been given this role to be his representatives to the earth, and that as we are now believers, that we are to be a kingdom of priests that go out and make his goodness and grace known. Genesis tells us that we were made to co-rule over the earth and that we were invited to participate in his creation by being fruitful and multiplying. Now, we saw last week that contrary to what our culture thinks, that we are not made for sex, meaning that sex is not ultimate. Rather, marriage and sex is a good gift from God made to flourish within God's design. And when we take marriage and sex outside of God's design, it can wreak havoc on our lives. And it can create evil like abuse and assault in the lives of others. And if we do not rightly see who we are in God's design, then we'll have a skewed perspective and version of who we are and who we're made to be. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing within the church, that there is a relationship that is taking place inside the church that is outside of God's design, and the church needs to deal with it swiftly and quickly. Next, we saw uh, last week that none of us have lived sexually pure lives, that Jesus has, had, has the highest sexual ethic. Marriage and sex is both sacred and a symbol. Jesus not only has the highest sexual ethic, he also has the highest sexual standard. And no one in this room here, like we said, has lived up to what Jesus has taught. And this isn't to make it seem like it's no big deal, like, well, we've all just missed the mark, and so we can just all kind of just figure it out as we go. No, it is that we move our identities and our actions under the lordship of Jesus and the goodness of his design. Paul deals so sharply with this because he is passionate about the purity of the church and its uh, design for God's people. So last week, that was just kind of a brief recap of what we covered, and now we're going to dive right back into this chapter about how Paul tells us how we should deal with these issues within the church. Now, before we begin, I want to just give us this warning. Church discipline, especially in our age, it feels funny because we are a people that live in our autonomy. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me how to think. I am my own person, and I am free. So to have this idea of church discipline where people are going to come in and exercise authority over us to tell us what to do and how we should behave, it feels wrong. It feels off because our culture has taught us otherwise. But the message of the scriptures and the message of King Jesus is that we all come under his lordship and his authority. My life is not my own. 
It is under the lordship and rule of Christ Jesus. So this, from Paul today, when we read this, it's most likely probably going to sound harsh. He's going to say things like, the person that is among you who's doing evil, turn them over to Satan. We might read this and be like, oh, wait, Paul, what about grace first? What about a little love and mercy and kindness and gentleness? It might sound funny to us as we read. For others of us in the room, it might be like, oh, yeah, you tell them, Paul. Like we might have had instances or experiences in our life where we want people to be told how they should live and how they should act. Maybe it might feel like we're living in a bit of shame when we read this, like the spotlight is on us. If people knew what I've done or what I've been doing in my life, we might wonder, does that mean that each Sunday I need to come up for church discipline? Like, are they going to bring me up before the church and turn me over to Satan? How do we, how do we handle this passage? So we're going to walk through it slowly uh, this morning. I'm going to read for us. I don't think it's on the screen. I don't think I have that slide in there. So I encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. And then we're going to take this piece by piece about how we should respond uh, to sin inside the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. I'll give you a second to turn there. Paul says this, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of the fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who is doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. When we get to this passage today, here is the main idea behind church discipline. The goal of church discipline is repentance and restoration 
for the purity and witness of the church. The goal of church discipline is never to come down heavy-handed or harsh on a person. It is always so that they might see their sin and repent and be restored to the body of Christ for purity and witness of the church. Now we see Paul is addressing two issues here. First, it's the sin of the person, but second, we see that it's also the sin of the church. The most startling aspect is that Paul doesn't just condemn the perpetrator. Paul isn't just speaking out against the man who's living a sexually immoral life. He turns the focus back to the church and scolds the community as a whole for being complicit in the matter. This is happening among you, and you're proud of it. This is happening, and you're boasting. Their response is that they're proud. And some translations even say that they're puffed up about the situation, meaning that they're celebrating the sin. And Paul says that this is a sin that not even the pagans would tolerate. Now, we learn a few things here that I think are really, really critical for us to see. We live in an age where there's a church on every corner. In fact, if you pull out of this driveway here and turn down towards Max, there were four, now there are three Southern Baptist churches from here to Max. I mean, it's a two-mile stretch. There's three. And that's not even counting all of the other churches that are on the stretch. I think I counted one time uh, with all the different denominations, and there's like seven churches from here towards Max. Churches are everywhere, which means that church discipline or joining a church body, it just can be kind of free and loose. We can treat it as if it's no such big deal. I can come to this church if I don't like it or I don't fit in, or if I don't like the people or the style of it, I'll just go to the next church. But see, here in Corinthians, they have a much higher view of the church. We see first that there is a fellowship, meaning that we don't just go from church to church, but that we actually belong to a body. The gatherings were not a free-for-all gathering, but has some coherence about its membership. There are some lines which it is possible to step over, some control over who comes to worship and who belongs to the community. In other words, Paul sees that in their fellowship, there is this idea of church membership. Now, we practice church membership here at Alpine. Every quarter, we have a new members class about, we talk about what we believe, why we believe it, and then another quarter passes, and then we bring those people to vote to say, do, do you uh, confirm, church, that these people are uh, Jesus-believing people, that they've been baptized by faith in Christ Jesus, and the church affirms them. Now, if you read the scriptures, you're not going to see anywhere where it says church membership, or it's not going to say anything about a new member's class or about the practice that we take to get there. But the reason that we get here as a church is because we see that the fellowship is a group of people who are baptized believers in Christ Jesus meaning that we will not accept anyone into membership of our fellowship in our church who does not profess Jesus as Lord. They are not a Christian. This is a reserved place for people who are believers in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we're trying to be negative or exclusive. Anyone is available to come in and worship with us. But not everyone is able to become a member because you must believe in Jesus as Lord. So first, we see that there is a fellowship. The reason that we have uh, church membership is, second, that we see this. 
that fellowship assumes some responsibility. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's going to say this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The fellowship assumes that there is some sort of corporate life of believers as we gather together. That we love one another, we share with one another, we enjoy one another, we work towards uh, the common goal of faith and proclaiming Christ Jesus together. And this is not a new thing. This has deep roots in Scripture, that the fellowship assumes corporate responsibility. Consider Joshua 7, where Achan brought the Lord's disfavor on all of Israel by his secret act of taking forbidden treasure from the destroyed city of Jericho. This man uh, disobeys the Lord, he takes a treasure, and now all of Israel is faced with a punishment for one man's sin. Consider in Leviticus, it stipulates that those who commit various sexual offenses must be cut off from the people or the land will vomit out the entire people of Israel. Consider Ezra. Ezra mourns the faithlessness of all the exiles. Consider the prayers of national confession in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. All assume the reality of corporate guilt and hope for corporate redemption. Why? Because they are the people of God. We say things like we want to see America go back to becoming a Christian nation. It's going to be founded on its Christian roots. But America is not the church. We can put into law good things like abolishing abortion. But if we abolish abortion, that does not mean America is now corporately saved. The church who comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the gathered church, the ones who believe in Christ Jesus, these are the ones who are saved. We are all under the name of Jesus. We see that the fellowship is God's people. And Paul sees this connection between Israel and the people of Jesus. Like I was saying, we believe in this age of personal autonomy. And when we have, when we do this, we ultimately lose the deeper sense of senses of community. I mean, just think, a couple of decades ago, I mean, my grandparents, it was necessary to be a part of a community that would look after, take care of, help you along the way. We all have our own communities or our own families, but we have lost this sense of a community public need for each other. The church is the declaration that we cannot do this life on our own, that we need people that will walk along with us in this life of faith to see Christ Jesus for who he is, to confess and repent of sin, and to love and serve one another. I believe that this has had its effects on us. It certainly had its effects on me at a younger age. When seeing my personal autonomy, it makes where church seems like it's not that big deal uh, on a Sunday. It makes Sunday seem more like an obligation or a duty. It makes church seem like it's just a place to go and learn instead of a people which belong to God. And I believe that this is partially because we've preached a partial gospel. We preach a gospel that says repentance and faith is given to us by free gift in Christ Jesus, that it's Christ's sacrifice and atoning death that brings us to himself. 
that salvation is offered freely to all who believe by reconciling us to God through the cross. And we do a really good job at preaching this. If you want to read that in summary, just read Ephesians 2. Paul does a really good job of just like outlining that really briefly. But we can't stop at the first half because Paul com- continues to say in Ephesians, 2, in Ephesians 2 that he doesn't just call us out of sin, he calls us to something. Let me read verse 19 in Ephesians 2. It says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and are also God's members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which Uh, God lives by his spirit. When Jesus preaches the gospel, do you know how he announces the gospel? He announces it as the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. As people who are believers in Christ Jesus, we come under this kingdom. We live under this new way of life in Christ Jesus, meaning that no man is on an island Jesus is calling a new people, a community to himself where his spirit dwells and his goodness, his grace is made known. And this is why Paul is so upset about the public issue of sin in the body. Paul is calling for public church discipline because it's a public issue. He says this, when the body is assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, cast this man out from among you. Now, we know that these letters were written in a way uh, where Paul would write a letter and then he would send it by someone and they would most likely publicly read it to the church. Can you imagine this man sitting in the church and he gets to what we call chapter 5 and he knows exactly who Paul's talking about? And Paul goes on to use this illustration about leaven and dough and it seems easy for us to understand. Leaven would ruin the entire batch of dough. So this application is easy. Rid the sin of the body and be a clean batch. But there's something that's deeper that's going on here. If we notice in this passage, Paul brings up uh, Jesus as our Passover lamb. And when we think about Passover, Passover is at the center of this imagery here where they commemorate Israel's liberation from bondage in Egypt in Exodus 12. We see the Passover in Exodus has everything to do with the deliverance from the powers of oppression, and Paul brings this up for deep implications for our own communal identity. First, we see this about uh, Passover, uh, that we are protected from destruction by Christ's death. Second, we see that we are set free from the power that has held us captive. And we notice that then this is the church working backwards, Assuming power in division, assuming power in relationship, assuming power in their supposed freedom. And then lastly, we see in the Exodus that we are sent on a journey towards a promise. In Exodus 12, it says this, What do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. In the Exodus, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts mark Israel as God's distinct people and God's protection over these people. 
And Paul is reminding them, like Exodus, the blood of Jesus is our Passover lamb, and he marks us as a distinct people. And I think the parallel here to Israel's oppression uh, to Egypt uh, is interesting. Because when we think about it, sexual sin is often a power that holds people captive. If you have been, if you are living a life, or have lived a life, or have experienced some form of sexual sin, there is often shame, fear that's associated with it, but it can also be turned to the other side to mark abuse of power and a power that's over you. And a refusal to repent is a refusal to put the blood of Jesus over the doorpost. So Paul's description is striking to us and seemingly harsh, but this doesn't mean that discipline immediately turns harsh or mean-spirited. Paul tells us this, we keep the festival, we keep this belief, uh, the fellowship of the church, our Passover lamb with sincerity and truth. This means that if a church discipline issue comes up, that if we have to remove a person, this doesn't mean that we immediately turn cold or mean-spirited, but rather we do it with truth and love and sincerity, that we want to see their restoration and their repentance. Paul tells us this, that we should hand them over to Satan, the one who accuses people of wrongdoing and entices them to evil. Paul tells us to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. And I think I have Ephesians 6 up here. Consider this, where Paul is ending in Ephesians 6. Now, one key translation change I want you to see is in verse 11, where it says, put on the full armor of God so that y'all can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Your translation in your Bible will most likely say you. They, they mostly all do. But the Greek here is a plural y'all. Paul is talking about the collective body of believers here, about putting on the armor of God. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that y'all can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, y'all might be able to stand your ground. And after y'all have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted for the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which Y'all can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What Paul sees about the community of the church is that there is some corporate responsibility and protection as we collectively stand against the devil's schemes, as we work together to walk in a life of faith in Christ Jesus. We're not made to do it alone. We're not made to go it alone. And Paul is telling us, or he's telling this church, that you remove this person from your body for the destruction of the flesh. That he no longer has the protection or the encouragement or the love of the community. He is own his own. Now, there are two types of sin that Paul speaks out 
against in his letters. Because when we read a passage like this, uh, we might think, you know, do I need to come up for church discipline uh, for anger in my heart towards a brother, which Jesus says, that's likened to murder, or lust in my heart that's likened to adultery. Does that mean that we have to practice church discipline? I mean, we'd be doing that every Sunday. Our services would be full of church discipline. But Paul speaks out about two types of sin in the church uh, that is mainly associated with church discipline. The first is blatant, unrepentant sin. And it's not just sexual sin that Paul has on his mind. He says the sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, the drunkard, the swindler. For someone that is blatantly unrepentant in their sin, we are called together to frequently gather to confess our sins to one another. This doesn't mean that as we confess our sins that we then come up for church discipline. Church discipline is after blatant, unrepentant sin. Someone who is going so forward towards their sin that they are turning their back uh, to the message of the gospel. The second thing that we see in Paul's letters uh, is um, false teaching. Romans 16 uh, says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent and about what is evil. Consider 1 Timothy, where Paul says uh, that they, he's commanding them to stay in Ephesus so that you may commend certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. There is the message of the gospel, that it is by Christ alone that we are saved, that he is the Lord, and that he will judge the living and the dead. When we come against this teaching, this is what Paul will say, this is church discipline. You need to rid this person from the body. This doesn't mean secondary or tertiary issues that we might have maybe some different understandings of what the scripture says. This is about the primary issues of the faith. Paul says church discipline is required. But notice what he doesn't explicitly speak out against. Those outside of the community. I know that as my weeks go on, I can get so wrapped up in just the garbage that is on social media and people that just spew this garbage and all of this angst and hate and all of this. But Paul says, don't consume yourself with this. Find yourself in the local church. And Paul is specifically speaking about those claiming to be a brother or a sister. So what's the purpose of church discipline? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan. You see, grace is not intended to enable sin. Even discipline is an act of grace. 
It is loving for us to go with Christ-like concern to a brother or sister who is in sin and call them to something better in Christ Jesus. Which leads me to the last question. Does any of this work? Can we hope that by practicing church discipline that repentance and restoration are possible? We've all been in churches, possibly. Maybe we've had a life of church where we've experienced church hurt, or maybe we've been wronged or harmed by other people that claim to be Christians. And so we just wonder, like, does, does any of this matter? Does church discipline work? In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, in chapter 2, we see that it does. Now, commentators disagree on whether this is the man or not from 1 Corinthians 5. Some believe that it is. Some believe that it's not. But listen to what Paul says about 2 Corinthians and realize what Paul is speaking to is an issue of church discipline that has raised to the point of removing somebody from their body. Here's what Paul says. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul is telling us that a person that has experienced church discipline, if they are repentant, that we are to accept them in forgiveness, love, and comfort. We're not necessarily to hold it over their head, well, you treated me this way, and so we're gonna let you back in softly to the community, or maybe, maybe it's just better that you find another church. No, Paul says to bring them in with love and comfort. But first, this person must repent and forsake their sin. They must not come back into the community still living in a life of blatant, unrepentant sin. So how should we think about church discipline and where should we land this plane this morning? Here's uh, three or four thoughts that I have for us that I think are important for us. This passage emphatically calls the church to claim its identity as a people with a distinct character and mission and a countercultural witness. We are a distinct people because we are saved by Christ Jesus. We've been called under his lordship. We have a distinct character and mission because he has set us apart in his holiness to be sanctified, to be a kingdom of priests, to go and make his goodness known, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as royal ambassadors, to be a countercultural witness to the world. As we are a community of believers who love one another and serve Christ Jesus, we are a witness to the world. Second, we see this. We see in this passage uh, that church discipline is necessary. When a church does not practice discipline, it practices unfaithfulness. And this is a big deal, church. We have um, 
most recently in our network of churches, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we, there has been a task force that has uh, uncovered uh, various sexual abuse and sexual assault that's taken place in the church. And for a long time, uh, those churches have operated under just leaning too strongly towards just grace and it's just okay and it's not a big deal and we'll just sweep it under the rug. It's, it's not a big deal. But I believe that our, our convention has practiced faithfulness by bringing these things to light, by saying that these things are not okay. There is a power that is abused um, uh, be careful of the way I say this. Uh, there is a power that's abused primarily by men who have an authority, uh, whether it's in the church or within positions of work or maybe within positions of uh, influence by money or whatever standard, and they, um, they push themselves on, um, on women who do not know better. There is an authority that men have that can do this. Consider this, that sexual exploitation is a $99 billion industry each year. If you um, log on to your, uh, let's say, Instagram or TikTok, or maybe you go to a pornographic website, these websites are tracking you to know what it is that you like. And they are going to put images in front of your face that pull you further and further into sin. Sexual exploitation has a way of placing power over people. And the church is the place where this should not be the case where we should quickly and readily deal with sin. Some commentators have pointed out that in this issue here of sin in the church, Paul does not mention the woman. He specifically mentions the man. Now, they say well, this could be because it might be only the man that's in the body, uh, but some also say it could be a power grab for the man to exploit this woman. All of this to say... The church, when it does not practice discipline, it practices unfaithfulness. I said this a few weeks ago. When we gather here in the mornings, we're not a concert and a TED Talk. We are a group of people who have come together to serve and love Christ Jesus and follow his wisdom and way. Third, we see that Christ is our Passover lamb, uh, that we are protected from the destruction by Christ's death, they were set free from the power that has held us captive, and we are sent on a journey towards a promise. These words from Paul might sound harsh. You hand him over to Satan. But I think it parallels one of Jesus' parables uh, pretty closely. When we think about the parable of the prodigal son, the son wishes his father dead. The son says he just wants his inheritance. He doesn't want his father. What does the father do? He hands him over to his sin. Does this mean that the father's love is removed from the son? No. Does this mean that the father's attention or prayer is removed from the son? Absolutely not. We see when the son returns, it's the father who goes out to greet the son and bring him back into restoration to the family. 
In a similar way, if church discipline is practiced in a way where we remove somebody from our body, it does not mean that our love and our affection is removed from them. It means that we are committed to praying and seeking out their repentance and restoration. And then lastly, uh, I encourage you to do this. Take inventory of your life. What things do you excuse? A roll of the eye that turns into a harsh tongue? A quippy comment that turns into slander of another person in the church? A friendly relationship that drifts towards an affair? A drink that turns into drunkenness? The love and comfort of money that withholds generosity? Paul deals strongly with all of these issues within the church and that we need to take careful inventory of our lives because we are the people of God who bear witness to his goodness and his grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray um, that your spirit do a work among us. Father, that we value uh, who you've called us to be, that we hold in high regard who the church is, that your spirit dwells among us. And so, Father, as we gather on Sunday mornings, I pray that it's just not out of duty or obligation or we just come to learn something uh, just trivial, but, Father, that we, are, we believe and we see that we are opening up uh, the living word of God, that it's alive and it's active, Father, that it that has the power to convict and change us. So, Father, I pray that as we open up these words, that we, we take seriously the role of the church and our role within the church. Father, you have all called us to this church uh, to live uh, with one another in the kingdom of God, and that we take this seriously. Father, help us not to look towards our sin, but, Father, to look towards our Savior. Help us to not delight in our sin, but, Father, to delight in what you've done. Father, that you have set us free from the power of sin that's held us captive, and you have sent us on a journey towards a promise of a new heaven and a new earth with you. So, Father, I pray that we number our days wisely, that we live by your wisdom, and we seek you in all that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.